Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, change makers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Impact the World. I am thrilled that my guest today is Laura McCowan, who has just released a really brilliant book. It's called We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. And Laura is not only an author, she's also a yoga instructor. She had several podcasts, one of which Home was in the top 100 of iTunes podcasts. And she also runs online courses on a whole variety of themes. So, Laura, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Congratulations, this is amazing. Thank you. It's really brilliant and really beautiful. And I was just saying to you before we got started that even though the backdrop of the book, it, the backdrop of your story is getting sober from alcohol, mm -hmm. really it's such a spiritual book, it's a human book, and it's a book about an awakening for, for me as a, as a reader. Yeah, I, I wanted it to be not just a book about, I look at what happened to me as an invitation um, to awakening, right? Uh, and I think anything that causes us to do that is perfect, you know, and, it, and mine just happened to be alcohol addiction. So what were you, before all of, before your breakthrough and before you got sober, what were you doing? I know what you were doing with your work and your career, but you were also really looking into spirituality and that was a big part of your life. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I had always been a seeker. Even as a kid, uh, I can look back now and say I was drawn to books that were not the typical, you know, child books per se. I was interested not in organized religion, but just this idea of God, of... Um, I find God to come through me through words, mostly. So readings, older texts, spiritual texts, um, but even memoirs or stories of other people. Um, and I was always seeking that. I was always asking, I wanted to know more about this like human experience. I would spy on the adults, you know, at, uh, when I was a kid. Um, trying to listen to their conversations, trying to figure out what was going on, uh, what was really going on. And, um, and then I, I would say my first sort of formal entree into that was doing a yoga, yoga teacher training, uh, which I did over 10 years ago. And I, was, I had been doing yoga for a while at that point, but and I, I got into it for the athleticism of it. You know, I thought it was a great workout and it was different than running, which had yeah. been beating up my body. But I kept going for another reason, and I didn't really ha even know why. I didn't have the language for it. I just felt something happening when I was in there. And once in a while, you'd get this little nugget of wisdom from the teacher or something like that. And when I went through yoga teacher training, it wasn't to become a yoga teacher. It was because I just wanted to know more about what was going on. And that was the first time I really, you know, formally did any sort of study of spiritual texts or anything like that. And yeah, and then and then you go through something really difficult, right? And uh, I had also been attracted to teachers like Pema Chodron and Marion Williamson and Byron Katie and um, Carolyn Mace, and I just 
would like absorb this stuff. I was a sponge for it. Then I went, you know, went through having to get sober. You go through this really painful experience and it's like, oh, this, (laughs) now I have to actually try to, this is what they were talking about. I was just kind of learning about it before. Yeah. And this is, now I have to live it in a way or figure out if it's true for myself. Yeah, and you talk about that in one of the chapters about the very direct experience yes. of spirituality that you suddenly had when you hit your rock bottom. Yes. Because at the time, you were working in PR. Mm-hmm. So how clearly writing is, is in you, and, and is, is that what led you into PR? Or no. was, was it just, yeah, <laughs> it how was, did you end up there? It was, I don't, I, I really followed the fun. Mm. I followed what was exciting and where um, it seemed like people were having a good time. And marketing is really fun. And it wasn't all silly. You know, I I was really good at it. It's a people business. I like that there's an element of creativity. I like there's an element of business, sales. And, um, but mostly I just, honestly, I was a biology major for a year and a half because I really love science. It got to be really too hard, and I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I was like, where do the people at college seem to be having the most fun? It was business. Right. So, and then I got a you know, job starting a, at a startup, and then I went to agencies and just kept going on agencies. And agencies are like this breeding ground for just um, a fast-paced sort of work hard, play hard mm-hmm. people mentality, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I loved that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you said in the book, which I resonated with, is you you said kind of as an as a young adult going into the business, earning money, and then finding out that afterwards you all go and drink together. It just seemed like the dream. And you totally. talked about the the cart that would get wheeled around on was it Thursday afternoon, Thursday and drinks were served. And yeah. So for for a while it was a dream. But when did it? When did you know that the the party was over and the bottom started to appear? So I I get asked this question a lot and I I find myself like checking my answer, what's true, because it changes all the time Mm. the more I know about myself. Mm. (laughs) I can see that I knew it was a problem way back, like 17, 18 years old, when I knew I just liked it so much Mm. and and in a different way. I could never have enough. I never, you know, said like, no, I'm good. I always really went for it. Um, I would say I really, it really changed for me and I really started to notice after I became a mom because um, the consequences were more apparent, right? I couldn't just be hungover and worry about myself anymore. Um, and my, it, with my body too, like the, the alcohol started to hit me differently. I, I, would, I would get drunk faster. Mm. I would um, need to drink more to try to have that same effect. My anxiety was so bad, and I kept trying to drink more to get that same effect I used to have. And so it just just became more erratic. And I started to have consequences like being too hungover to go to work, getting a DUI, um, just really starting to get more and more careless. So it was about 2012, 2013 when I had some really big consequences, outward consequences to my drinking that caused me to say, I got a, I got a deal. Yeah, that was a wake-up call mm-hmm. time. Because I know the time can go for a long, you know, it's not like an overnight thing. It's like it's an elongated period of, 
reckoning with what's going on in your life and then slowly kind of hitting that point where you do stop. Yeah, and uh, for me, I don't think the the instance that caused me to stop was this bad, This I opened the book with it, this really rough incident with my daughter where I left her unattended for a night. And I, I don't think that would have been, if that wasn't a public sort of thing, I don't even know if I would have stopped then because, mm-hmm. you know, I think there has to be some place we reach that is, that crosses our own line of what, like I knew I, if I kept going, I was going to lose custody of her. Mm-hmm. And that for me was like a, enough, yeah. right? But God, there, it could have been so many other times before that Yeah. or should have been, whatever. Yeah. One of the things I really love about the book um, is that you really, you really open up the idea of how all of us are trying to soothe ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. and it's in, in whatever way it looks. So for one person, it could be alcohol. For someone else, it's shopping. For someone else, it's working too much. Like mm-hmm. we're all just trying to cope with adulting, basically, yeah. and uh, <laughs> being, being sensitive souls on planet Earth. And I think a lot of people will relate to that part of the book. And one of my favorite chapters is called We Are All Magnificent Monsters. Yeah. And there's a paragraph I wanted to read. You are a human not an addict or an alcoholic or any of the worst things you've ever done. Addiction is just an experience, one of many that can shape a life. It's not unique. It's not a flaw. It's not even that interesting. It's a natural human instinct to soothe, to connect, to experience ourselves differently, gone awry. Mm -hmm. It's one of the fundamental aspects of our nature written into every religious and anthropological record from the beginning of time. I, yeah, I mean, there's so many mo. Mm-hmm. I'm, I I had a lot of tags in here. <laughs> I had to had to take them out because it didn't look very neat for uh, for for those of you watching. But um, I, I marked out so many different pieces of the book that were real heart or aha moments for me as I was reading it. Um, we are all magnificent monsters. I love how you talk about. You no longer think that people are good or bad. You know that we're all good and bad, and it depends on the moment and depending on where we've been and what we've done, but that we can hold compassion for ourselves and for others in in all of that. That's really beautiful. Yeah, uh, certainly going through something like this, I did not always feel that way. Yeah. I did not. I thought um, I was a lot more judgmental, not that I'm not judgmental at all, but I I had much more hard-edged ideas about what was right and what was wrong and who was good and who was bad and you go through something that uh, where you are behaving in a way that is so out of your own integrity and so out of your own ideas of what is what makes a good person, you know, and it'll change you. Because I also knew, I also knew uh, that I was it. I was a good person. I also knew that there was a part of me that was beautiful and loving, even in my worst, you know, most horrific moments where I was truly lying and cheating and putting people in danger and being extraordinarily selfish. Um, so going through that, it gave me a lot more compassion for, for people. And I say we are all magnificent monsters because we are, you know, but not all of us know that. And I feel extraordinarily lucky, which is part of the, the, the luck part of the title that I do feel that way now. You know, it's a much um, softer way to live, <laughs> I suppose. 
an easier way to live. There are, there are fewer enemies <laughs> out there. You know, the, the biggest enemy is the one in here most yeah. of the time. Yeah. yeah. And we are the luckiest became a hashtag on Instagram, if I'm not mistaken. It did. Uh, it was in my earliest days of sobriety. And I, a lot of this book is about sobriety more than it is about the drinking part. I found early sobriety to be extraordinarily difficult, and a lot of people do, but I was in a lot of pain. I was frustrated and sad and very angry, <laughs> and it was just a very emotionally raw time, and I, it was just a, a silly night, like really a Tuesday night or something. I was at home in bed around 9 o'clock with my daughter. She was sleeping in bed next to me, and I had just been crying about something. I don't know what, and a moment when I would have usually medicated myself, you know, uh, and I didn't, and it passed, and there was this, like, moment of quietness and just sort of realization that I was okay, I was safe, my daughter was here, safe next to me, we had clean sheets in the bed, no new destruction was going to be created, and I was grateful, you know, because what I wanted, what I had always wanted was this direct experience of life. It's what I always wanted. And I thought that alcohol was like bringing me closer to it. It was like amplifying my experiences and all that. Um, but it had been keeping me from that. And so I thought like, we, I'm lucky, I, I'm lucky. Because I always thought people who could drink normally were the luckiest. So right. I just wanted that, you know, that I wanted to go back to that. So I had this moment of like, no, we are actually the luckiest ones. We get to wake up and we get this invitation. And so I wrote something to that effect on Instagram and then it, it became a thing. Yeah. So. And people use it often to announce their sobriety, I, I've, I've heard on Instagram, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. You also have something else that you, you put at the beginning of the book that I think is beautiful. And it's, um, it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's a mantra that you wrote for yourself when you were first sober? That oh, you... the beginning. Yeah. No. No? So it's, I don't, you wouldn't know this because right. I don't <laughs> say right. it anywhere. Yes, it's the epigraph to the book. So I, uh, this actually came from a woman had writ written me a letter. I used to answer letters a lot on my blog. And she wrote me a letter about her sister who was really struggling with alcohol and she didn't know how to talk to her sister about about it because mm. she was afraid and she didn't want to push her away, but she was really concerned and she was frustrated and angry and sad and loves her sister. And so those nine points were, was part of the letter that I wrote her at, at the end. I had this list and that's the list. And you say, it is not your fault. It is your responsibility. It is unfair that this is your thing. This is your thing. This will never stop being your thing until you face it. You cannot do it alone. Only you can do it. I love you. I will never stop reminding you of these things. That's, yeah, it's really, I mean, yeah, you start with the book with that and it's, it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. It's I, everything I wanted to hear, you know? So in a sense, it was, was something I would wanted to, want to say to myself or needed someone, wish I could hear from others and so, so any of us who have ever had or gone to an addiction, we're usually cope stuffing something, unable to express something, unable to feel something, running from trauma. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I loved that you said in the chapter about your pregnancy is you said, because you were pregnant, you applied self-care 
to yourself at an all new level that was also societally accepted. Because if you wanted to leave the party early, you could say, I'm pregnant, I need to go and lie down. You said you'd never experienced such a self-care period in your life, but you needed the excuse or society needed the excuse of you being pregnant to, to facilitate that happening. You know, I work a lot with and have to apply this myself. Mm-hmm. As sensitives, we don't self-care enough. We've never been trained to. We don't know what right. that looks like. We think we're being selfish. We're putting other people out. Right. That That's a really powerful chapter around the lack of education that we have around other ways to soothe ourselves and to regulate our nervous systems. Yeah, the pregnancy principles, mm. what I ended up calling it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was this really amazing period during my pregnancy where I thought, oh my God, I didn't even realize how much I needed that. The like almost self-imposed or in boundaries that pregnancy offered because like you said, no one's going to argue with, with you when you're pregnant yeah. and it's just accepted. And of course she just, she's going to do what she wants to take, needs to take care of the baby and herself and it's all good. But when it came to getting sober, it was like, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. Like I'm getting, I'm feeling judged, whether it's true or not, you know. Uh, I, I, it was only when I saw it as the same that I'm saving this life. And I'm not growing a baby, but I'm saving my life. There's nothing less than that. And anytime you do something, you don't have to be in an acute addiction. Anytime you save yourself from behaviors that are destroying you in some way, destroying your spirit, destroying your health, whatever, you're saving your life. Mm. And so to look at it with that level of seriousness was so, it just cut right through all the BS about, should I go to this thing? And who's going to care? And is it okay? And yeah. what, if, what if they think this? And what if it was just like, that's, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. And it's funny you say, what are they going to think? Like the opinions of others, there was a really cool part in the book that you mentioned here where you say, I'd worked my entire life to try to shape your opinion of me and to avoid at any and all costs criticism and judgment. Why? Because I was ashamed, ashamed of my body, ashamed of my feelings, ashamed of my desire to be loved. Again, it was just another moment where I was like, okay, well, we're talking about sobriety, but we're talking about life and we're talking about society, really. Right. Um, Because that and how that builds the shame that leads to the behaviors that we're trying to soothe and how that then spirals out of control. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that maybe the whole book is like this um, permission slip to sort of I can't say that I, I did have to choose at some point to just, it's not that you ever stop caring what people think. I think that's unreasonable mm-hmm. and it's ridiculous. We, we're not made that way. But you almost can't care that much anymore. Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. can't if you're going to do the thing you're going to do. So true. You just can't. Um, and, oh, you know, something that someone asked me recently was, like, how did you how did you get over what people think of you, you know, what people assume about sober people and what, what people are going to think. And it's like my, all my worst nightmares already happened. They already happened. Like it didn't matter anymore. So that's also a blessing like pain, going through difficulty and pain is like you're, the nightmares have already happened. Right. And you, you can, um, you just, it wipes away a whole layer of this desire to have permission. I say, like, you, you can ask people for support, but don't ask them for permission because you're never going to have enough. 
Yeah. Right. Whether it's a creative project or a idea or a book you want to, whatever, you're yeah. never going to get enough permission. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny when you talk about, again, it goes back to we are the luckiest. Having a rock bottom is a gift because it allows you to make a change. But you talk in the book about work addiction, which is huge, and how celebrated we are for working hard. Yeah, even we don't our... see it as a real addiction. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff like that. It's social media, mm -hmm. you know, the, we have created a society where it is extraordinarily easy to check out a thousand times a day. Um, but we don't look at a lot of the ways we check out as bad. There, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm a workaholic, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. It's kind of applauded, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting. I noticed in England um, with a few family members in the last decade uh, who, who found AA, they needed to find AA. Mm -hmm. And then other people in my life that I'm close to, I've noticed the stigma in other people. It's, it's often been the older generation where I think the shame was more, was, was higher around, oh, they've got a problem. Yeah. But I've noticed the kind of hushed tones uh, yeah. about, oh, they're going to an AA meeting. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we can't talk about it. And I'm like, well, we can talk about it. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's just very different, I think, to our generation now, all of this stuff. It is. It's, uh, it's curious. Alcohol is still a very curious animal in our culture. You know, mm. it's this, um, we still, we love it. Uh, largely, and, and not not everybody, but as a, as a culture, we generally don't see it as a drug, you know. Mm. And if people can't, so it's like applauded, and especially I noticed that in mom circles and things like that. And then, but if you have a problem, you got to kind of go away and deal with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you're you're flawed, not the thing, not yeah. the system, or not the substance, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So. And you, you put that so clearly when you spoke to your friend Holly about what exactly happens with the brain, the hippocampus. Can you just share? It, 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 yeah. Because that was, that was so good for me to read. I read it in those two paragraphs. And yeah, like, wow. it's in this chapter called um, Stop Getting on the Train. So um, I won't go through the whole story. The important part is when we get addicted um, to anything, any process or uh, drug or alcohol, whatever it is, it literally, to do like the most layman ver version We're of gonna do the basics, that's <laughs> okay. good. We'll just do the basics yeah. and people can research more so, detail if right. they want. So you get this, it, it, it uh, alters your pleasure reward system in your brain. So you get this hit of dopamine. Mm. Dopamine is extraordinarily strong, it feels good. We want, it causes us to be motivated to do things. We can't live without dopamine. If you didn't have any going through, you wouldn't show up today. You, you wouldn't get out of bed. So, but when we get more, it, we want that again. Um, but the problem is it spikes so high, our body, our brain tries to compensate for that. Um, and sometimes it will eliminate the receptors. So it'll stop providing as much dopamine and it essentially starts to bring your levels lower and lower, right? And so you're not actually getting the same reward that you got, but your, your uh, brain still pursues the activity as if you were going to, despite any negative consequences that have come from it. Because like, for example, I got an invitation to a party and I see this invitation and I now associate an invitation to a party with, oh, there's this whole cascade in my brain, friend, alcohol, ugh, this, yay, this is going to feel good. Yeah. When that hasn't happened for so long, it hasn't been good for so long, but I'm already on this train. Mm -hmm. And when we are addicted, our um, 
our brains pursue that thing as if it's as important as sex, food, water, shelter. Because right? we've rewired our track. We've, we re we've laid these tracks that are very deep. So it's like, this happens, you get that, right? Um, and it is literally like you, to override that is extraordinarily difficult. So if you keep putting yourself in the same situations and re and groove making that groove even deeper and deeper, it's extraordinarily hard to get out of that if unless you really change your life, mm. right? Um, and so it it helps me to understand that because I got into a situation where I was like 30 days sober and I had fought really hard for that. It like took me over a year to get that. And yet I found myself on a train <laughs> with a bottle of wine in my lap about to drink it. And it was like, I was, I was literally out of my mind because I had already started to go down that route, you know? And it was almost, it was like watching myself. And a lot of people will say that. I, I keep watching myself do this thing. I, I don't even want to do it anymore, but I'm doing it. Um, so it's, it's almost like, it's not your fault. That's the, it's not your fault part of it. Um, and the, the good news is you can change. We know we can change the brain. Um, and you can lay down new tracks and you can work towards that. So a big turning point in the work that you do now and kind of a, a launch pad was your podcast, Home, which started in, was it 2014? 2015. 2015. Mm -hmm. How did Home come about? <laughs> it, uh, I had always loved listening to pot. I can't say always because it didn't always exist, but I loved, you know, I would say for seven years before that, I'd been listening to shows like Radio Lab and then WTF by, with Mark Maron. I just loved the format. And I really, when I, when I was tr going through getting sober and at the early parts of sobriety, I had so much I wanted to say. Like I just, this topic was so big to me. It was so, so much bigger than drinking or not drinking, you know, a lot of the things we've been talking about. Yeah. And I just, it kept like, I'm sure you have felt this many times where you just get this idea and it seems absurd, but you're like, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It just keeps coming up, mm -hmm. keeps coming up, wouldn't leave me alone. And I had a friend, uh, I have a friend, Holly Whitaker, who was similar. She has now runs a company um, with a big sobriety program, and she had the same kind of passion that I did about talking about this. And I kept bugging her about it. Like, Come on, let's do a podcast. She's like, I, what? No, I, no. <laughs> So she wasn't into it. She at wasn't first. into it at first. She was like, "This is ridiculous." What? <laughs> no. Who listens to podcasts? I'm like, I, I do. Yeah. And um, then she happened to listen to some podcast, and it was like one of those people call in and ask a question, and and it was a really popular one. And the answer, she was like, "We could have answered better than that." She's like, "Let's just do it. Come on, right. let's just do it." So I was like, "Okay." So came up with the name on a run, <laughs> like I, I, I get a lot of inspiration home. when I'm running. Um, I don't know, I think. But it makes sense, like I, yeah, you know, I hear that name like and I'm like, oh, it's gonna feel home. like home. Yeah, I yeah, kinda, yeah like this yeah. is a journey home. I kind of guess, yeah, but. Yeah, this is a journey home. And um, we had some terrible names, <laughs> Sober Village, like <laughs> all these different, home ended up, thank God, ended up winning. And then, uh, you know, got cheap microphones, 
recorded in I recorded in my daughter's bedroom because it had the best you know small acoustic room acoustics. And had you recorded anything before, or did no. you like have to go to YouTube, or like how did you figure that out? I just figured it out. Right. Cool. Do you just Google things and yes. you try things? And I was not. I'm not afraid of technology. I've worked mm -hmm. in digital marketing, so I. I wasn't afraid of that. Yeah. I think for some people it's like, it's very yeah. unknown, but I like figuring stuff like that out. So, and you know, I have friends too. Like I had a sound editor friend who was like, do anything I need to know? He's like, no, just get a microphone and try it out. And we recorded, we had like, we made a list of episodes that we, uh, topics maybe that we wanted to talk about, recorded one episode and I will never forget, we, we put it up, you know, on SoundCloud and then it filters out everywhere. And the next morning we woke up and look and you could see the stats. There was like 150 people listened. We were like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> 150 people want to listen to us. And we just kept going. We did a show every week and it quickly, you know when you're kind of onto something because you're getting a lot of feedback about it. It was very surprising too. We didn't really realize because with podcasts, you just see these downloads, but we would start to get letters. We would get, you know, people messaging us on Instagram, emails, stuff like that. It was, it became a thing. And then we started to have guests. And I mean, I ended up talking to like my, these authors that were like mythical creatures to me, you know, at the time. So it was just one step and then the next and then the next. And, and, and then before you know it, you're doing, you have a body of work with something. And how were people finding you at first in the early days? Um, I was writing on a blog. It was actually called I Fly at Night. Mm. I was writing on that and posting my, my new posts to um, Facebook, you know, yeah. and Instagram primarily. I think that was the real, that still is kind of the real center of how people find me. Yeah. Because you can type in sober as a hashtag and... Right. See all right, kinds right, of right. things. So I hear a lot of people say, I found you on Instagram mm. or I found you by listening to home. I mean, because you can also search on podcasts sober. And, and now there are dozens of sober podcasts. But at the time, there was like three of us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The statistics on podcasts are really the amount of people who have listened to podcasts or listened to podcasts. This was back in 2017 was the last time I saw the statistics when I presented our 2018 Impact the World. Yeah. And I did a whole section on podcasts. And as you said, like it's back then it was a smaller thing, but now it's, it's, it's huge. Massive. And it's such a great thing to listen to when you're doing other things or running it. or driving or it's, it's, it's great. I love this new emergence of free podcasts. Everywhere. Oh, me too. And it's such a good, it was for me, it was so important um, because when we talk, we figure out our story, mm -hmm. right? And we learn about ourselves. And it's good to be able to tell your story in whatever way, writing, speaking. It's important, I think, for anybody. Uh, that's why we do therapy, mm -hmm. you know, is this talking. In, in talking, we, we change our brains. We learn about ourselves. We kind of straighten out our, our story and we reiterate it. And um, it helped me in that way tremendously to do that aside from being this fun creative project and ultimately leading to a lot of work. Yeah. It did lead to a lot of work. And is that led to your retreats or other people kind of coming to you to ask you to do things? How did that look? <clears throat> it led to, uh, it, it built a, a platform, an mm. audience, you know, uh, that 
yes, if I had a retreat going on, because so at that time I was still working in my old career. I didn't quit until 2016, but I had built a, an audience so that by the time I quit, I had, you know, when I ran my first workshop, there was, there was an audience there. Um, or I would say, I want to teach this workshop around the U.S. Where should I go? And people would write me and say, where, where, Fantastic. you know, um, yeah, uh, asking me if I wanted to come teach a retreat. Most of the, most of, um, mostly it built, it started to build this community um, of sober people that started to follow, like it continued on past the podcast of, to follow my writing. And then you get people on an email list and then, yeah. you know, they sort of become part of your world. Yeah. And I think podcasting is especially amazing because you really invite people into something, you know, depending on what type of podcast it is. But they get a tap. They 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 knew a lot about me, um, so it's more personal. There's something more intimate about it. I agree. The intimacy, and I think also the listening, and so, you know, the, you might your be in ears. your headphones. Yeah. It's it's very yeah, yeah. It's very. There's a delicate. There's a, I don't know. There's just something about it. But I agree. So I'm curious when. So 2016, you went self-employed. Mm-hmm. But when did you start conceiving and writing the book? And what was the writing process like of the book? Yeah, so I, I knew that I wanted to write a book. And I knew that the book would be about my addiction sobriety story. Mm. And I remember, th- I remember interviewing an author uh, who came, Sarah Heppola, came out with a book called Blackout in, I think, 2016. And she was saying, oh, it took me so much longer to write this book than I ever thought. I thought I'd write it in a year, be published, and it took me four. And I remember interviewing her then and thinking, oh, that won't be me. You know, <laughs> I'll write it and it'll be published in like a year and a half. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so I started writing. I started writing it then, but it had many iterations. I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't know really. I hadn't lived enough into the story yet. Um, so there are many, I would say I started in 2016, there are many drafts and versions and even names of the book. Um, but then I realized, I think sometime in 2018, early 2018, that I wanted it to be a book about sobriety, not the drinking story, right? So the process for me, I also thought, and I think this is funny and people might relate to it, I thought writing a book, like I tried every way to write a book without actually writing the book. <laughs> <laughs> right? I thought it would be like, oh, I'll just take all my blog posts and like string them mm-hmm. together. Nope, that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, so there was a whole other learning curve there. Anyway, I, the way I wrote it was I thought of myself in 2012 when I was in really a lot of pain and really struggling with drinking. And I thought, what did I need to know then? Like what, what, were my, what was breaking my heart about this idea of getting sober? And what did I most want to know? What were the questions? And those became my chapters. Mm. The shame, who's going to love me? Like, mm. what do I do with dating and relationships? What about what other people think? You know, it really formed my chapters. Brilliant. And then I wrote, I wrote the chapters basically in sequential order. And you talk about re- redrafting uh, a chapter over and over again. So how much... How many times have you written this book? Like, did most of it flow out and you just had to edit or, or did you really go through a rigorous writing process of redrafting? I would say half of it. So 
when I, when I sold the book, I had like three chapters done. And those three chapters I had rewritten and rewritten and rewritten mm-hmm. a dozen times. Um, once I, I would say I got halfway through the book, I kind of hit a rhythm where I wasn't, where I would, I realized that because I also had a deadline that I wouldn't finish if I kept doing what I had been doing at the beginning where I like, I let myself write poorly is what I did. And then I would just move on to the next chapter, let myself write that. So I really did like a full draft and then I would go back. Whereas before I would write a chapter and I would like noodle over that chapter for months and think it had to be perfect. Um, And that I would, it would have taken me like, Six years to write that book, yeah. right? So there was something about the process of letting myself write poorly, um, as I imagined it. Yeah. Just, just write. To just get it down. Get the words yeah. down, right? Um, that was, thank God I learned that because uh, I will carry that into the next book. Um, I think we, th- I had this idea certainly that it comes out beautifully, you know, and it's, almost close to done, Mm -hmm. really nothing needs to happen. It's like some of those chapter drafts were terrible. They really were, but they had to be that way. Mm. Um, And then then I went back and took like a a good pass through it. I also didn't realize how much um, help I would have in editing. You know, a lot of the things that, that I worried about, like, oh, I already said that. Or like people don't know that yet, so I have to go back and like you don't have to figure that all out yeah. when you first draft something. It's true. There's mm-hmm. a village. There's a village around the book that kind of comes in and helps shape yeah. and mold and see and yeah, yeah. But it is a big deal, isn't it? I mean, that I I had no idea how big a deal a book was, mm-hmm. and we were taking material that had come from audio, even though we were meticulously. I mean, that was a, a meticulous process, and Deborah. Deborah Evans, who I who I work with as an editor, was did an amazing job. But still, it's a it's a big deal. A book yeah. takes a long time. Yeah. Normally, for people to, at least to the release point. And how did it feel when you handed it in? Uh, it felt great. Yeah. Honestly, I was. It's like it was such a moment. I'm not a person who works on things for long periods of time. I'm very much a project-oriented mm-hmm. person. I like to do the thing that I love doing, and then I like to mm-hmm. move on to the next thing. A book is not like that. So I was very proud of myself that I stayed with something for that long because it's atypical. So when I turned it in, I but there was also a lot of like, I really don't know if this is good. Mm. I had no idea anymore. So I turned it in. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to get back. This could be terrible. I think that's one of the hardest parts about writing um, and maybe any sort of individual creative pursuit is that it's really done alone. Yeah. You know, you're not, the, the self-doubt is just this constant beating voice. You yeah. don't know if what you're doing makes sense, if it's good, if it's bad. It's hard to work through that. It's true. It's really hard. I would say that's the hardest part. It's true. I think that's one of the muscles you develop as a creative. It's like that you're always slightly on the edge of a cliff. Always. And, and you if you're to... not at that cliff, that's true. you know you're not doing it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I remember I remember feeling the same thing. Like, are people are people going to like this? I mean, I could I could let that go, but I hoped people liked it for the sake of the publishers and all the people that had worked on it. And then it was a relief when it comes out. But yeah. we have a mutual friend, Scott Stabile, and we were just talking about him before, and he was really helpful to me when about three weeks or four weeks before my book came out, um, he told me that he went 
a bit mad when his book was coming out. And I shared that with you and you said you had the same experience and you had the same reassurance from Scott. And it, it, it is weird <sighs> when that's about to, and you, it's, it didn't make a lot of sense to no. me having put stuff out into the world for years. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a weirdness to the it whole process. It is a weirdness to it. And I don't really even know what it is either. All I know, it was true, it, it was true for me too. I think it's energetic. So for me, yeah. it's that you're about to put this energy ball out into the world that originally came from or through your body, maybe with help from other people. Yeah. And now you have to give it out and it's going to have this relationship with everyone else. It's kind of like giving up a kid for adoption and yeah. not quite knowing how it's life. And you have go. no control. Yeah. Right. I think that's probably true. Yeah. 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 It, it felt like um, clearing a major yeah. hurdle of some kind. Yeah. yeah. That was like, yeah, or like a birth process, like you said. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Well, I know it's been doing really well, and I yeah. know that people are loving it. Um, so that's that's a really nice part of the process. It is. I yeah. know. Uh, it's it's hard to think of what. Yeah. Luckily, that has been the case. And how are you finding the autobiographical nature of it? Because you've been sharing your story mm. and parts of yourself for years on a podcast, but it, it's a different thing, isn't it? When you put it in the written form, it's kind of this central force, and now you're having to do interviews and things about it. How has that has that been as you expected? Or... Yeah, I don't, it has not been hard for me. I don't, um, I don't know why or how, but I have this remove from it. Mm. Like, I know that story is about me. I, I, but I, maybe it's because I've been talking about my story for long enough. It doesn't feel, there isn't any difficulty around that. But one of the reasons I think your book is good is your story is about us. Yeah. As a reader, yeah, I get that I'm reading your story, but you've done what really good writing does, it, whether it's a song or whether it's a, a, a piece of writing. You, you invite us to experience ourselves through your observations, your experiences, your feelings. Mm -hmm. So I get that. I, I, I get that. Um, and you have many courses. One of them is called The Bigger Yes, which I just think is a fantastic name. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one of them is We Are the Luckiest. And yeah. You run these online. I run them online. Fantastic. How have you found running? Because I know you've done physical retreats too. Mm -hmm. What have you enjoyed about online courses and communities online? Well, the reach is so great because I literally teach people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. That is hard to make happen in real life. Um, and also the num you can teach so many more people um, and, and they can meet each other. Mm. You know, larger groups can meet each other. That is really cool. Um, they're, they're both wonderful. Like I love, uh, I like the fact that I can be home and, and be with my daughter. I mean, it's a great, it's a great method for someone who wants some like flexibility and freedom in their life. And I like, I can pick up my daughter from school every day still and teach an online course. Whereas if I'm teaching in the world, that doesn't happen. Um, I love teaching live though, because there's nothing like it would be very easy to just sit there and teach online courses forever. But there's something, every time I teach live, I forget how wonderful it is to actually see people mm. and talk to them and watch them get in their bodies. Cause I do a lot of you know yoga in my mm. classes and it's extraordinarily powerful. So the bigger yes is an online course. And then it's also a retreat that I teach and it's amazing to watch the difference, like you can really get far with people online. Um, I think it's amazing, but in person, it's like, 
Wow. And the bigger yes, is that about me saying a bigger yes to my life, my soul living in a... Yeah, yeah. basically, and, and, and locating that. You know, I think um, a lot of people don't ask themselves or don't, don't provide themselves with the context to ask big questions, like about how they're living their life and what they actually want. Um, and I get a lot of people too who are in these transition periods. They've just gotten sober. Their kids have just left the house, the home. Um, their relationship has ended. And so their identity is changing. They're in this like liminal space. And so they're wondering, hmm. what am I doing? You know, is this right for me? Is this, what, do I want this career? Do I want this, do I want to live where I live? And so it gives them this, this process to really do that inquiry. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I think one-on-one -on -one work is so invaluable. Like, you know, having yeah. had one-on-one -on -one therapy, having worked with a lot of people one-on-one, -on -one, but the community process is incredible because you all learn from each other and whether you're hearing from someone online or whether you're in the room hearing other people, it, it's just the best medicine when you're totally. together. Yeah, no, yeah. it is. There's a, there's, a, there's a whole dynamic that happens separate from from me or that happens with the group. Yeah. That is special. Yeah. What would 12 year old you <laughs> think if she saw what you were doing today in your life? Wow. That's such a cool thought. Oh, I think she'd be so relieved. Like that was the word that came to mind. At that age, I was so anxious to make sure you liked me and make sure everybody was okay. And it was hard and exhausting. Um, and I didn't think the things that I liked were and were interested in like books and um, music and stuff were valuable. Like I didn't know what to do with that. Not that I didn't think they were valuable, but that it could, it could, they weren't valid as like a career or something. Right. So you could receive and partake of them, but you didn't know you yeah. could go into I that arena. I didn't know I could dream like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I could want that for myself. So I think I would feel so relieved that mm. I could, that I could live into a life like that, like that. Yeah. And Alma, you said, is in fifth grade? Yeah, so, so she, she'll be 11 soon. Wow, okay. So it must be really cool for her to have you as a mom and whatever her... her... <laughs> well, you well, didn't ask her that. <laughs> well, but, but I mean, in yeah. well, well, I would say certainly in terms of the energy of transformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, she, I'm teasing. You know, yeah, she thinks but... I'm just, she's, uh, yeah, I'll let you finish your I, Well, I guess, you know, just a really, really great for her to see the kind of arena of possibility that yeah. you are walking her into that very, very literally in your mm -hmm. life, not just telling her, but demonstrating and she gets to see that work in your life. Yeah, I hope she sees that. I think she sees that more than I think she does. Right. You know, I, um, she, she came to my book launch party and she played a song like on the ukulele for 80 oh. people. She was not afraid. She is so much more, so much more self-possessed than I was at her age, um, which is amazing. And yeah, I think she down, you know, she acts like she doesn't care what I do and course, you know, all that. But she, um, <laughs> I think that, I hope that she sees that. I hope that she sees what's possible. And mm. she was, 
she was young when I was drinking, but she's heard me talk, um, talk very openly about it all. So I think, you know, I hope more than anything, she experiences what it's like to have someone who is present, mm. you know, and goes through all of life, the bad times and the celebrations and all that. And I don't drink alcohol. It doesn't have to be part of this picture. And this is this big life, you know, yeah. and a nice little life too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. which I think is the key for a big life. I was just saying that Talk. yesterday. It's like oh. someone said, how do you stay balanced to me? And I said, well, I have a really small life. Yeah. Like the, the work we do might be big and Stephen and I travel with it and, and that's awesome. But then the remedy for me is we have a really small, quiet life oh, when we're at home and I love that. The time. The, that's the name of the last chapter in the book is A Nice Little Life. Right. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, people ask me the same and I say, I keep my life very simple. Yeah. It's like very small and simple. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic to have you here and to talk yeah, to you. Too. And for anybody who has enjoyed any part of this conversation, I highly encourage you to check out Laura's work. Thanks. Thank you so much, Laura, and good luck with the book. And thank you for the book because I've greatly enjoyed it. Thanks. So Laura can be found at her website, which is lauramccowan.com. Hope you've enjoyed the show and be sure to check her out. Take care. See you next time. You have been listening to Impact the World. For more of my work, please visit leeharrisenergy.com.